0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Hello and welcome to The Country Hour. Brooke Nindorf with you for the next couple of days. Thanks very much for your company. Hope you had a good weekend, whatever you got up to. Coming up on The Country Hour today... It's long been reported that the average age of Australian farmers is on the rise. The latest data is no different, but what does it actually mean?
3: Uh, This graph is probably a good sign, actually. Ten years ago, the average age of farmers was around 53, 54. We thought that was a bad thing, and we worried about running out of skills. Now we see this graph showing things at about 64 and what we see is the farmers who are doing this, by and large, are enthusiastic about what they're doing. Uh, they're in, by and large, in good health.
2: We'll have more on that shortly. But I want to hear from you. What are you noticing when it comes to the age of farmers? Are they getting older where you are, or are the younger ones coming through as well? You can send me a text on 0467 922 We'll have more on that story very shortly. But first today, the Australian wool industry is looking to ramp up supply of the fibre to India and potentially recruit a much-needed workforce in the process. Wool Producers Australia CEO Joe Hall will be amongst a delegation travelling to New Delhi to attend the inaugural Joint India-Australia Wool Working Group. She spoke to Cara Jeffrey about the trip to India where currently just 5% of Australia's wool, cl- wool clip is exported.
4: We think since the ratification of the free trade agreement at the end of 2022 that there's potential to maybe send more wool to India. So the joint India-Australia Wool Working Group is a newly formed group. This will actually be the inaugural meeting and will be held in Delhi later this month. So we're looking to just build relationships with our Indian processing counterparts.
5: And so it'll be a focus on sending more wool there. Will there be any focus on labour at all in any potential for uh, shearers from India or wool handlers to come to Australia and vice versa? There's been some media reports about this happening and
4: it certainly is part of the agenda for that meeting, but it's it's very early stages yet. As you would be aware, there's um, quite a shearer shortage happening here in Australia at the moment and the industry itself is looking at Any options that we can investigate to to fill that shortage. So we have had preliminary discussions and it will form part of that meeting agenda. But India has um, actually more sheep than Australia. So we view this as a potential skills transfer between the two countries and a cooperative agreement but we've got a lot of hurdles to jump first for example india's uh shearing systems are, are quite different to australia's system so it's very much just investigative at this point in time
5: and this uh meeting will be held in delhi and and who who will be in attendance from australia
4: so the invitation was made to um representatives of all of the domestic supply chain in in australia so uh, the three service providers AWI, AOX, and AWTA, along with ourselves, obviously, uh, we have uh, reps from wool producers, AWTA, and the exporters. AWI's staff in country will also be in attendance, I
5: believe. And in Australia, the shearer shortage is it still continuing?
4: It is still continuing. You know, we're we're hearing uh, anecdotally that it's it's everywhere. It's Australia wide the shortage. We actually. I had a, a meeting a few weeks ago uh, which was the first national wool technical advisory group uh, and that comprised of representatives from wool producers, AWI and all of the state. Shearing tags or the wool tags at each state level, as well as the contractors and, and training groups. So, as I said earlier, we're looking at all options to address this current shortage, and there is a lot of training going on at the moment, and that's great to see. But we've really got to hone in in those attraction and retention areas of the industry. So, work continues in a pretty collaborative sense in in
5: in that way. And is the main workforce internationally still coming from New Zealand?
4: Yes, obviously pre pandemic that's where we supplemented our domestic workforce in the wool harvesting sector we're not seeing new zealanders come back in the numbers that they were pre-pandemic and and there's a number of reasons for that i think mainly that there is a shortage of shearers in new zealand as well um and also their pay rates have increased uh in new zealand
5: here Are you hearing how much the costs are going up for shearing? The charges, is it getting quite expensive per head to shear? Because shearers have that option to basically name their price at the moment.
4: Yeah, we're definitely hearing that. Uh, We have a supply and demand issue. And and when that happens, um, prices do increase. And I'm not really aware of anyone that's paying award rates at the moment. That will continue, I guess, for the foreseeable future until we, we build up that workforce.
5: And are you hearing how long those delays are taking until people can get shearers to their place? I think it
4: depends on the areas. Um, also, conditions come into it. If, if people have, um, wool growers have good, good sheds and amenities for their workers, they they have less of a problem attracting workers, so... Uh, that's another issue
5: and uh, a farmers, a wool growers facing any discounts if they go too long and they end up with that over length wool are they are they being hit with some discounts too in the auction room
4: well again quality any quality traits um, that you know is being searched for in the market if it is that over long wool um discounts are being applied but I'm not hearing a lot of that but um, it wouldn't be surprising if it, that is happening.
5: And is there any figure that you can put on it that you that you think the Australian shearing workforce would be short? Could they do with another thousand shearers on the ground? Is there a number for that? I believe
4: the figure is around 500. You know as I said before we've we've got lots of training happening within the industry and, and trying to encourage new entrants in so uh, once we Get them into the industry, we just need to keep hold of them.
5: And is that money pretty appealing these days with what they can get paid per head? And if they are a good shearer in a day, isn't it an appealing industry to stay in for both shearing and wool handling? It certainly
4: is. I mean, you know, good money can be made at the moment by shearers. We're certainly seeing that, um, you know, hearing of some pretty big pays at the end of sheds. So, you know, that again being a supply and demand issue that's that's to be expected so I think anyone that is in the industry at the moment and and participating in wool harvesting is probably having a pretty good time
2: Wool Producers Australia CEO, Joe Hall, speaking to Cara Jeffrey. Let's stick with wool now, and Stud Merino Expos have a long history, but just how important is the event to the wool industry? Well, according to Jock Laurie, Chairman of Australian Wool Innovation, it's pivotal, not only to connect wool growers, but to engage with the broader community. And Mr. Laurie was there for the launch of the book about the 100 years of the SA Merino Breeders Association in Borough last week. And he spoke with Demetrio Panagiotaris about how the wool industry is going at the
6: moment if you have a look at the economic circumstances that are happening around the world have a look at COVID and where COVID was or has been over the last three years you know they're coming out of the very big drought in sort of 1819 put a you know made all the agricultural industry pretty sensitive then go into COVID and um, that restricted movement, restricted travel, restricted trade to a certain extent, that put pressure on and now we're going into an international recession. Um, recession or certainly high inflationary factors, so all of those things are are having a big impact, a big impact on agriculture. Wool industry uh, I think the price has held up reasonably well through that period of time and we're seeing starting to see some very positive signs in in markets around China potentially. Um, back in through some of the Asian markets we're seeing some positivity and, and I think that's um, that's just giving us a level of confidence that we may be over the worst of it.
7: And what does that global market positivity look like exactly?
6: Uh, increased demand. In the end what it'll do hopefully is get people spending money once they're spending money we've got to then deliver a product that they want and you know our marketing campaigns are all about trying to make sure that we can identify what the product is develop that product work with brands and everything to make sure that we can get that product out in the marketplace and we create the competition through marketing we create the product through our research off farm and then you know hopefully we've got the uh, the right article that people want to buy and as economies start to open up and people start spending money again then we'd like to be in the position and that'll create demand and hopefully flow right through to the auction price.
7: And what are your hopes for the future of the wool industry? What are you predicting and praying for, I guess?
6: I think you have a look at history and history shows we launched a book today of 100 years. You know, we could have a look at another 100 years and they might write a second book. You know, the wool industry's been the backbone of of a lot of family businesses across Australia for a long period of time, and I think that the history here today has shown that, and I can't see any reason for that changing. What what we have with all agricultural commodities, we've got continual challenges. One of those at the moment is around the harvesting stuff, but there's a lot of investment to try and address that. You know, there's a lot of good stuff happening in the game at the moment. It is a, a truly natural product. We've got a whole international debate going on around environmental sustainability. Wool is a, a product that slips into that beautifully. You know the the Echo campaign, where Wool Not Fossil Fuel um, advertising that we've just finished, has been you know really successful. It's generated tremendous interest, tremendous interest in wool, the natural fibre. So I think we're in a in a reasonably good space. We now have to continue to build on that.
7: And what does a book like the One Hundred Years of South Australian Sud Merino Sheep Breeders Association actually mean to the the wool industry?
6: I think it's really important that all industries including the wool industry record their history before you know it history's gone by and the people involved in that process have passed on and you tend to miss out on a lot of the good stories that are going there so recording it in a book form i think is no a 100 years it's acknowledgement the industry's been there at the times it's, it's uh, acknowledgement the importance of the wool industry it's acknowledgement of the people that have been involved in that space it certainly shows if you read the book um, you know some of the big historical studs in South Australia and where they've gone, how they've changed hands, and that's been been interesting. It, it shows the a lot of the families that have had long term involvement and, and are still involved in the industry. So that really shows how you know strong the industry is. All of that stuff is good, uh, and if you miss all of that, then I think you regret it. So the time they've spent in actually developing this book, putting it all together, uh, is great. What it has shown is a lot of changes. You know, for instance, and. I mentioned a few of those in the speech around you know the, the massive crowds that they were getting to some of these events, you know how they changed the the youth that were involved initially and how that's changed, and we're finding different ways to engage in youth in the programs.
2: That was Jock Laurie, chairman of Australian Wool Innovation, speaking with Dimitrios Panagiotaris at the annual SA Stud Merino Expo in Borough last Friday. Now last week the annual Lucerne trial field day was held in Keith giving growers in the industry a look at research paddocks ahead of harvest. They're part of a five-year study undertaken by Lucerne Australia to improve crops in the region. Scott Hutchings, agronomist with Cox Rural Keith and Lucerne Australia chair says there's still a lot to learn.
8: We're into the fifth year of a five-year trial and we're looking at basically the influence of different watering strategies as well as looking at at the yield of of different loosened varieties so loosened historically there hasn't been much yield data like because it's a a grazing crop but our customers and our members grow it for loosened seed to sell to the grazing industry there hasn't been very much focus on seed yield historically so we're really uh, just looking to assess that and also we find that some varieties Struggle to yield well and we're basically testing the theory that by stressing those crops more we could increase their yield.
9: And what have the results been showing?
8: So so far we've had uh, we're, we've had four years of data in the first of a, of a seedling in the seedling year of the crop the moderate stress trial trial plots yielded the most in the second and third year the high stress high water stress trial plots yielded the most and in the fourth year just because of different seasonal conditions there was no significant difference across the trial and yeah we've you know, we're about two to three weeks off harvest for for the current trial. And we've also seen some various, some of the new varieties that have specifically been targeted or selected genetically as seed yield being part of their breeding. They're also showing up quite well in the trial over, over consistently over the last three to four years.
9: And I know you're not quite harvesting it yet, but how's this year's crop looking?
8: Uh, overall this year's crop and uh, it'll probably be a close to average tonnage you know it's not with the variable weather we've had we haven't seen as good a set and also had a a, quite a bit of pressure from australian crop mirrors through the crops because of seasonal conditions so yeah we're looking at kind of around average tonnages across, across across the area so you know we'd be i'd expect a lot of you know to 600 kilo total farm averages. There'll be individual varieties that go higher than that, but, yeah, we're thinking that they'll probably be a little bit lower. So
9: almost done now with this five-year trial. What's next for it? Are there going to be any more or will it just be all wrapped yeah, up?
8: Yeah, so we currently do these, these are basically research within the lucerne industry with AgriFutures as a, as a funding partner. So also on the field day, we also had a, a brief from Dr Peter Botsalas. Because lucerne is quite unique and many of the small seeds crops within the southeast are unique in the fact that they're perennial broadacre crops, that means that there's not a lot of herbicide rotation within, within those crops. They're quite specific in their needs for a product like because there's so much grazing they have to have short grazing withholding periods also have to be suitable for hay and also some of the chem- chemicals we use have to be soft on pollinators so we it's hard to get products registered or that'll be suitable for us so we are because of those reasons seeing quite a problem with resistance particularly within annual rye grass but we're also seeing a little bit of resistance coming to south thistle and um also into barley grass, which is a lesser problem. But the annual ryegrass resistance in our industry is quite severe. And to a number of products, including glyphosate, paraquat, clephidim, and um, uh, probably the main ones, and, and haloxysol.
2: Agronomist and Lucent Australia Chair Scott Hutchings speaking with Elsie Adamo. Brooke Nindorf with you today. It's 20 minutes past 12.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Now, it's long been reported the average age of Australian farmers is on the rise. The latest data is no different, and it shows the average age of farm managers is now above 63. Michael Whitehead from ANZ Bank says Australian ag hasn't become a retirement village, and a closer look at the data shows some positive stories.
3: Uh, This graph is probably a good sign, actually. Ten years ago, the average age of farmers was around 53, 54, and we thought that was a bad thing, and we worried about running out of skills. Now we see this graph showing things at about 64. And what we see is the farmers who are doing this, by and large, are enthusiastic about what they're doing. Uh, They're in, by and large, in good health. They're the ones who've probably built up their operations, consolidated, um, excited about what they're doing. And in a lot of cases, they're part of two generations who are increasingly on a farm as the family farm uh, grows more than we thought it would.
10: So do you think as succession plans kick in on farms around the nation, we'll see uh, that graph, those numbers change?
3: Look, we might. And this is probably in a way delayed the great succession in Australian ag uh, because those farmers, they're very fit now, but they're not going to do that forever. So in 10 to 15 years, a lot of them will retire to the sea or be off their farms. But then the way agriculture is going, we may well see the generation after the current younger one coming through again.
10: And Michael, does this data take into account a lot of retirees who, who buy a small block, run a few cattle and sort of live out their days there?
3: You are absolutely right. This data is not perfect. This data does include all farms, and there will be a lot of small ones in there. This data also, and talking to our good friends at ABARES who've pulled it together, includes the person who sat down and filled in the farm survey. Um, So so it's definitely there. So it's not perfect data, but you go to any grains conference, beef conference, any farmer gathering and look around, and you think to yourself, yep, this is pretty close to the truth.
10: Well, you've shown this graph and this data to a lot of grain growers this week. What has the feedback been like?
3: Uh, The feedback's been absolutely positive. Uh, At the West Australian Grains Conference, a room of 600 people nodding in agreement that, uh, yes, that average age has gone up, but also, yes, it's a positive. Uh, And who wouldn't be enthusiastic about being in grain or so many of the other industries at the moment?
10: Can I get you to elaborate a bit more on why you think the average age going up is a positive thing
3: uh yeah, because it's a it's part of the change we 've seen in ag over the last ten years. Yes, the number of farms has gone down uh, largely because they 've consolidated the people who didn't want to be in it anymore have Uh, probably sold out, sold to their neighbours, and their neighbours who've bought and stayed and grown and who are still passionate about sheep or cattle or grain or whatever industry they're in, um, are fitter than people used to be and are enthusiastically building up their operations. And also, as we say, um, more than ever, for a number of reasons, their kids are joining them on the farm. They're bringing back their, their city education in finance, in agriculture, And they're also benefiting from the growth in regional towns. And as the attractiveness about building to the region grows for kids and their partners, that helps build up these family operations.
10: And are there any sectors within Australian agriculture that are actually bucking this ageing trend?
3: It's interesting. When you break down the figures, that's one chart there. Uh, was looking at the dairy farmer figures yesterday and the average age of dairy farmers, uh, according to this Saber's data, is lower, noticeably lower than this as well. Uh, and that might reflect a few things interesting to think about, uh, whether it's on the fact that dairy farming is a... Uh, much more physical uh, part of farming than set and forget grain or, or beef cattle can be at times, um, or whether it reflects that uh, more younger people are saying, for those who do come into dairy, um, will will come in and do it rather than some of the older ones staying around.
2: Michael Whitehead, Head of Agribusiness Insights at ANZ Bank, speaking to Matt Brown. We've had a text come through from Mick. Thanks very much, Mick. Uh, he says, Brooke, I think the average age of farmers is closely linked to the average age of the people who fill out the surveys. I now put 37 as the age of the farmers on our property instead of 58, which I am, as that is the average age of the four that work it. By not doing this I would be skewing the data. Thanks very much for your text, Mick, on that one. Let's head to the Weather Bureau now and we're joined by Simon Timkey. Good Afternoon, Simon. Hello there, Brooke. What's been happening with the weather across the state?
11: Well, we had that change uh, move across yesterday, which did bring uh, quite a bit of lightning over southern districts, uh, sort of late afternoon and and during the evening. That's all contracted well to the east now, but we are in a um, a milder westerly airstream in behind that change, and there are still uh, a, a few showers mostly confined to the southern agricultural area now. Um, uh, and we did have a little bit of rainfall recorded as that change moved across to generally sort of the order of, uh, of two to five millimetres over the uh, southern agricultural area, the odd spot picking up the order of sort of five to eight, maybe five to ten. So no big totals, but, but a little bit of a sprinkling uh, here and there. Looking on the satellite picture at the moment, we've got another front approaching from the southwest. so we'll see winds across the south of the state tend around more west-northwesterly ahead of that change and then we'll turn back around uh, uh, more southwesterly, following that change which is expected to move over this evening or or early tomorrow morning so that that front will will keep the showers going over the mostly over the southern agricultural area and near western coasts and then a similar situation for Wednesday another little front pushing across the uh, the southern parts overnight Tuesday into Wednesday again keeping those uh, those showers going mostly over the southern agricultural area but on Wednesday wouldn't be surprised to see the isolated showers sneak up over the uh, northern agricultural area as well but further north over the pastoral districts conditions remaining dry right throughout the next week. Uh, On Thursday we'll we'll start to see a a gradual easing of those showers and see them contract back to to southern coasts by late in the day Uh, and then Friday I think should be pretty much dry right across the state. Over the weekend um, we've got a trough moving across the west and south of the state. But at this point, it looks to be mostly dry. Maybe just a slight chance of a shower or thunderstorm right up in the very far northeast corner and, and perhaps a chance of the odd shower about the agricultural area. But for most of the weekend, um, conditions should, should be dry and a little bit warmer as the winds turn around a bit more northerly uh, as that trough moves over the, the north and west of the state. And then gradually through the weekend and early next week, we'll see those winds swing around a bit more southeast to, to southwesterly. So, conditions pretty cool during the week, sort of mild conditions in the south, a bit warmer in the north, and then generally becoming warm to hot throughout over the weekend and, uh, and Monday. Um, rainfall totals wise uh, for the next few days. Not expecting any big totals, but there will be a, a, a little bit about the southern agricultural area. I think over that four-day period through the, to the end of Friday, we can expect to see totals of around 2 to 10 millimetres about the southern agricultural area and maybe locally a little bit higher um, near southern coast, particularly the lower southeast district and about southern Mount Lofty Ranges where we might see some, some isolated falls uh, uh, in the range of, uh, of 10 to 20 millimetres. Further north, maybe the odd spot over the northern agricultural area getting up to two millimetres or so, uh, and and continuing dry over the over the pastoral districts. Brooke, so a little bit around the place, but uh, but not expecting any big totals.
2: Fantastic, thanks very much for your time, Simon. Thanks, Brooke. Simon Timkey at the Weather Bureau. Let's have a look at the Western Inlands for tomorrow. For the Upper Western, a mostly sunny morning with the chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the afternoon and evening. Winds south to southwesterly, 20 to 30 kilometres per hour, becoming light in the late evening. Overnight temperatures falling to between 16 and 23, with daytime temperatures reaching 30 to 37. For the lower western, sunny winds southwesterly, 20 to 30 kilometres per hour, and overnight temperatures falling to around 14, with daytime temperatures reaching around 30. You're listening to The Country Hour, Brooke Nijndorff with you on this Monday. We've got plenty more to come up. We're going to head to the SA produce markets and find out what is in, uh, what's in season for fruit and veg and also hear about uh, where the Jep's cross markets are now situated. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Plenty more to come uh, over the next half hour. Stay tuned.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Brooke Neindorf.
2: Hello, thanks for your company. Coming up over the next half an hour... Twenty South Australian wineries will participate in a program that will help them crack further into the Canadian export market.
12: Uh, we know that Canada has got a you know a particular way of buying uh, wine and liquor, so this advice is really helpful, I think, to local producers. We've got about twenty South Australian wineries uh, that have been selected to be part of the program.
2: We're going to hear more on that one shortly, but I want to hear from you. What other products do you think we should send to Canada from South Australia and why? You can send me a text on 0467 We'd love to hear from you on this Monday. But first, let's get the latest news headlines with Matt Coleman in the newsroom. Good afternoon, Matt.
13: Hello, Brooke. In the news this afternoon, the South Australian Liberal Party won't create enforceable quotas in an attempt to boost the number of women in state parliament. The party currently has two female MPs in the lower house after last year's election defeat. It's prompted a task force to be created to look at female representation. Construction has started in Adelaide's West to build a new multi-million dollar technical college. The Findon Technical College is one of five new trade schools worth more than $200 million that will be built across South Australia by 2026. And 30 South Australian wineries will be hooked up to buyers and retailers in the United States in a bid to help them break into the competitive overseas market. The state government will co-fund 30 placements in a Wine Australia program that matches local producers with US businesses. During the the last lot of placements SA wineries received 1.8 million dollars in orders more news at one o'clock
2: thanks very much Matt Matt Coleman in the newsroom let's head to the SA produce market now to find out what's in season we're joined by Penny Reedy marketing communications manager for the market good afternoon Penny Good afternoon. Thank you for having me today. No worries at all. Welcome back to, uh, to the first day of the week. Let's have a bit of a look at our fruit first. And first
14: of the new season, apples have arrived, Penny. Yeah, I love this time of year. The, um, we get the first varieties coming through from the Riverland, so the Royal Galas have started to be picked already, and we've seen the first of them come from the Riverland, and some picking happening in the Adelaide Hills as well. So in the next couple of weeks, you'll start to see more and more new season varieties in your local fruit and veg stock. We're looking forward to the Kansas and the Fujis coming up in a few weeks, but yeah, get some fresh off. picked picked off the Adelaide Hills um, trees, apples in your basket this week, as well as pears as well. So when the apples come along the pears are there as well. We're seeing the green pack and pears and also the red sensation are in season at the moment and they're the first of the varieties to be picked. And just to let your listeners know that they might see a little bit of hailstorm damage on the apples and pears this season. And so might find a few black spots, but trust me, they're tasting fantastic.
2: Ah, That's good to hear. What is There's still a bit of stone fruit around, Penny?
14: Yeah, we're starting to see the last of the South Australian grown coming into the season in the markets this week and next. So for those who like their produce locally grown, make sure you pick up some Queen Garnet plums. They're native to Australia, really high in antioxidants. Um, They've actually got the highest level of antioxidants of any fruit in the world. Um, They're a little bit tart, and they're perfect for jam. So... If you want some locally grown queen garnet plums, make sure you pick some up this week, as well as your white flesh nectarines and peaches. We'll see the last of the season coming through of them this week as well.
2: Penny Reedy, we might go to uh, vegetables now. And uh, potatoes, what's
14: happening with the Kipfler ones? Yeah, we all know a lot of people have been talking about the shortage of frozen chips and um, some people relate that to a shortage of potatoes, which isn't quite the fact. It's more of the, uh, we've got plenty of supply of retail potatoes sitting in our fruit and veg stores. And I saw some really interesting Kipfler potatoes that are grown in Virginia that have been put into some sustainable packaging we're all used to seeing uh, potatoes in plastic bags, but this grower has actually come up with a small cardboard box of Kiffler potatoes. And the Kifler are a small finger-like potatoes that are great for either roasting or boiling. So have a look for them. Um, and this time of year, we've always got lots of supply of those glass house lines. So eggplants... Um, they're locally grown in the Northern Adelaide Plains. They're really great quality at the moment. And capsicums as well. Look out for a bullhorn capsicum. It's a type of chilli pepper, but characterised by its unique shape. It resembles a bull's horn. Um, and they can grow up to 20 centimetres long. And the flavour of the bullhorn capsicum can, can be quite hot, um, but can also be sweet and slightly smoky. So the growers here recommend that you roast them. So if you want something a little bit different, Look for a bullhorn capsicum this
2: week Yeah, that sounds very tasty Uh, Penny Reedy, uh, also while we have you Yesterday the Fresh Produce and -and Brickerback Markets which used to be at Jepps Cross they have moved to a new location right there at the premises of the SA Produce Market How did
14: the uh, first day go? Yeah, we were really overwhelmed by the response. So for those people that know the Jets Cross market, I had been operating for 36 years at that location where the old Jets Cross drive-in used to be. So, That land was sold and they needed to find a new location for that market. Um, And given that we're only a couple of kilometres down the road and we have a fully undercover market square that really wasn't being used on a Sunday, we decided to move that market over to the premises of the SA Produce Market. So it's got a new name for the location. We're now calling it the SA Farmers Market. It's every Sunday undercover on the market square in Paraka from 6am to 1pm and it's got lots of farm fresh produce, bric-a-brac and market stalls. And we were overwhelmed by the response yesterday and some of your listeners that may have gone on may have struggled to get in in a timely manner, but we've nearly doubled the car parking space this morning to streamline that process.
2: And what have our sellers, what have they thought of the move?
14: The, yeah, mixed emotions because a lot of them had been at the old location for a very long time and were, you know, very sad to leave their old location. But on arriving, they absolutely loved it. They've got flat ground, whereas at the drive-in it was... um it was very uneven because you used to have to park your cars up to watch the movie. Um, and it's all undercover, so they don't have to put their marquees up either. And we also have a great cafe on site that got rave reviews yesterday. Apparently they sold about 300 homemade sausage rolls in there yesterday.
2: Oh, that sounds right. I am have to head along there when I get to Adelaide next. Penny ready? thanks very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. That was Penny Reedy. She's the Marketing Communications Manager for the SA Produce Market. Well, let's go from fruit and veg to uh, to wine now. And 20 South Australian wineries will participate in a program that will help them crack further into the Canadian export market. 73% of the Aussie wine exported to Canada comes from SA and this initiative aims to lift that figure even higher. Minister for Trade and Investment Nick Champion says it's important for companies to diversify their global markets to ensure resilience
12: well, the Explore Canada program is all about providing really practical advice and local market knowledge uh, to South Australian producers, and that's basically to help them secure initial orders and connect with Canadian buyers and retailers. Uh, we know that Canada has got a you know a particular way of buying uh, wine and liquor, so. This advice is really helpful, I think, to local producers. We've got about 20 South Australian wineries uh, that have been selected to be part of the program, uh, which is run by the Department of Trade Investment and Wine Australia.
7: And going back to just difficulties in breaking into the market, why is that?
12: Well, uh, Canada has a particular way of, if you like, uh, they've got liquor boards, uh, which are really a leftover from the Prohibition era. It basically has governments and national retailers are purchasing wine in a, in a fairly sophisticated and, and orderly way. So you need to be aware of the, the structure of the, of the Canadian liquor market in order to access it.
7: How strong is the demand for Aussie wines in the Canadian market?
12: Well, for South Australia, it's our fourth largest destination for wine exports. So it's increased 17% to 139.9 million in the quarter ending December 2022. And that's about 10% of the state's total, total wine export. So it's a significant market. It's a growing market, which is important. And for South Australia, we're dominating Australia's wine exports to Canada. We make up about 73% of them. So this is a a really good market, a growing market, and it gives us some diversity um, and alternatives for winemakers who might have been affected by tariff increases in other markets.
7: And the program is part of the Wine Export Recovery and Expansion Initiative. How is that going?
12: It's going well. We've got the South Australian Wine Ambassadors Club, which is really uh, helping to lift the profile of South Australian wines in a number of uh, Asian markets. And we've got this specific Canadian market initiative and we're looking just around the world at seeing where we can you know make a difference obviously it's winemakers who export their products it's them who do the deals with the retailers and the buyers in foreign export markets but what government can do is help just open the door a little bit uh, give expertise give advice and help uh, people along the way and that's where if you like we uh, help to value add uh, for our state's wineries
7: And how is uh, the Australian wine market coping at the moment? Uh, You've already sort of spoken a little bit about the the strain that it's endured. Is it tracking to establish new connections with other countries and and trade?
12: Well, we're certainly seeing a lot of wineries realise that diversification is good for both profit and for uh, resilience. And I think that's an important thing. We never want to be completely reliant on, on any one market. Uh, I am reasonably optimistic that China will improve uh, for both our wine and seafood and other exports. So that relationship has stabilised and we hope to uh, progress too on the trade front. Uh, but clearly diversity of, of export markets is, is a real plus for every winery and, uh, and for other producers as well. And that's really, I think, the key export strategy that we're pursuing.
7: That was the Minister for Trade and Investment, Nick Champion. Mm-hmm. Trent Burge is a winemaker and the owner of Corriton Burge and Barossa Boys, located in Tanunda. Currently, both of his wine brands only have one product in the Canadian market. But now that he's been selected to participate in the program, he hopes it will see that relationship strengthen and expand.
15: Historically, Canada has been a really successful market for Australian wine. The year before COVID, when, when we visited, the view there was Australian wine had plateaued. It, was, it wasn't it was growing. So we're thinking now with this program and working with the Canadian markets that if you can get in and kind of sell the great stories that we have of Australian wine, uh, I, I think it, we if we can reinvigorate the area, um, we, we could see some growth in that market again.
7: Has there been a bit of a trade mission on ground? Have the Canadians come to Australia or or vice versa? I
15: think because the program's in its infancy at the moment, um, there's been a lot of Zoom conferences or online side of things to build that relationship, to build that up. Uh, And then going forward, it'll be about the wineries helping provide some samples to then get over there and people can try wines that they might have heard about or learnt about or understood about Australian wines.
7: And what are your hopes for the program? What do you envision for your future with this relationship?
15: Well, our, our big focus is to try and get more opportunity in, in front of these buyers and kind of break that barrier down so we can really help diversify into new markets over there and, and grow sales. From a Wine Australia point of view, they're really trying to work with the smaller guy from, it's not just the big wine companies out there that have been able to export and, and really sell themselves like maybe it was previously. The, the, these types of programs, um, I think it really shows and gives us smaller businesses a, a great opportunity to sell what we are producing um, on a world sense and help grow. Uh, we've been in the industry for a long time, so um, my family's been in the industry for over 150 years. So um, we have some good knowledge out of that. But to be able to portray a new brand to these markets, uh, having the backing of Wine Australia and kind of the local communities over here, um, overarching side of things, it really, I think, will help us in in the long run.
2: Trent Burge, he's a winemaker and owner of Corriton Burge and Barossa Boy, ending that report by Demetria Panagiataris. Sticking with wine and export opportunities for SA growers, it was announced this morning that SA wineries will receive expert support to enter and expand into the growing US market and uh, as part of a new Malinowskis Labor government-backed campaign. Wine Australia's U.S. market entry program matches local producers with U.S. buyers and retailers, expanding local producers' industry knowledge and connections to secure orders and break into the overseas market. The government will co-fund a record 30 places, which is more than any other state, in this year's program, and it will run for 12 months from July. In the last U.S. market entry program, local producers received $1.8 million worth of opening orders sales the US is the second largest destination market for SA wine exports, according to the latest ABS data. And wineries interested in the upcoming program can apply to the Department for Trade and Investment and Expressions of Interest for the US Market Entry Program close on the 31st of March. You're listening to The Country Hour, Brook Neindorf with you today. It's coming up to a quarter to one.
13: You know your history, but
14: maybe not this history.
9: A whole different history than what I was taught at school. Join Zoe
2: Coombs-Ma to explore the queer history of Australia. Oh, this should be fun.
13: Each
2: generation has its own
13: story. There was a lot of fear.
2: I felt like I was the only
9: one.
14: Spoiler alert. This queer history is not all rainbows. Queer Australia. Illegal. Legal. Legal.
13: Illegal.
14: Tuesday nights on ABC TV and streaming on
1: ABC iView.
13: This is ABC Radio Adelaide,
1: South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Now, 1,000 razorfish shells made from clay have been buried in a seabed near Kangaroo Island to create artificial reefs for native oysters to grow. The island is home to one of the few pockets in the country where native flat Angazi oysters exist after they were over-harvested in the late 1800s. The Kangaroo Island Landscape Board and ceramicist Jane Bamford teamed up to replicate the shells and create new habitats for the threatened species. The board's Coast Project Officer, Alex Comino, told Bethany Alderson all about the innovative project.
9: Jane was working down here on another project and it was really just a conversation between at the time our project lead and, and Jane about how could we create structure and a new substrate that mimics what these native oysters are looking for in the wild naturally. So particularly important was the relationship that the Angazi oyster, the native flat oyster, has with the native pinna or, or razorfish. Because so many of the Angazi oysters have been lost to us, we only see larger populations of the Angazis still persisting where there are pinna or or those razorfish. So we were looking to create an artificial but biodegradable mimic of those razorfish and have them installed on our reefs. And then
0: Jane came along and and the rest was history really. And you touched on it briefly, but why have the reefs been lost over the years?
9: Well, it was sort of in the mid to late 1800s and the early 1900s when the European colonisers were making their way around Australia and what they thought was an inexhaustible supply of oysters, they really believed they'd never see the end of them, were in reality completely exhausted within 100 years. Not only with all the oysters... Sort of overfished, eaten, but then they also dredged up all that oyster shell that they could crush down to lime for mortar. And by removing that substrate, that means that even though we feel really lucky here on Kangaroo Island, we have just enough adult oysters that you know they create millions of larvae. That float through the water every year, but there's just nowhere for them to land. Even when they do find somewhere to land, maybe it's on the jetty pylons or or some other infrastructure, they're generally picked off pretty easily by predators because they're just not very protected.
0: And do you expect the reefs to only attract the native shellfish or will they encourage other species to the habitat as well?
9: Yeah, definitely. um, we'll certainly we'll have other shellfish species coming onto the reefs. We've got scallop farmers over here telling us, oh yeah, you're going to have lots of scallops and yeah, different shellfish species, different oysters. One of the big drivers of this reef project from our perspective was to create more fish habitat, not only for commercial fisheries, recreational fishes, and also for some of those threatened species that we have in our waters.
0: And how long do you expect it to take before you do start seeing signs of new populations?
9: Not long. We've timed the reef build with the natural spawning season of the oysters. So within a few months, you can see them. They do grow quite rapidly and then you can see them with the naked eye. Within a year, they're sort of the size of your palm. And then within about two years, that's when the oysters should be mature enough to start producing their own spawn. So that's when we'll have, hopefully we'll see a a self-sustaining reef where the oysters that have colonised our reefs will start to make their
0: their own babies. Coast's Project Officer Alex Cominoe. Ceramicist Jane Bamford says she worked closely with the KI Landscape Board to replicate razorfish shells that are naturally found in the wild.
16: Well, I spent a bit of time looking at razorfish shells. We do have them in Tasmania, but they're not as common as they are in South Australia. Into a project like this, you do quite a lot of research and start to have a look at the form, read all about it, try to understand what ecosystem
0: is. Are all the ceramic shells unique to one another and different shapes and sizes? They are. So each one's handmade.
16: I basically roll out a big slab of clay so it's got some sort of pressure on it to give it some strength and then I cut out those form shapes and then each one's then sort of lumped over like a a mould so it actually takes that sort of concave form.
0: Have you always been drawn to working alongside scientists to produce art?
16: I've been working in clay for 27 years but about six or seven years ago I started working on a project with the CSIRO in Hobart making artificial spawning habitats for the spotted handfish and from that experience I realised that there was an ability to work in conservation projects in clay and since then that's what I've sort of focused on.
0: And this project specifically, what intrigued you to work with the KI Landscape Board?
16: Well this project is like it's, it's quite practical but it's very intuitive and I think you know like it's actually a really incredibly beautiful thing to actually make a form for another species to land on and, and it's the form that what is in habitat normally that they would use so uh, yeah I think Paul's insight into creating this project has been really intuitive but actually it's really exciting.
2: Kangaroo Island Landscape Board Project Officer Alex Comino speaking with Bethany Alderson. Actually, that's not right. It was Kangaroo Island Landscape Board and ceramicist Jane Bamford speaking with Bethany Alderson. It's 10 minutes to one.
13: Weeknights from 7.
6: Peter Gers. Stopped off in White Whiteyarkawi, which has a population of more dogs than people. (laughs) And as we were talking in the street... Somebody passed us in a car. When I got to Oruru, everyone in Oruru knew I'd stopped and talked to them. <laughs> Lewis and White Yakawe. Country people know everything
13: that's going they on. Do. The Bush they do. Telegraph. Peter Gers, weeknights from seven. On ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Now, more than 100 residents in Wakery have taken up offers to have their fruit trees removed or replaced in an effort to fight fruit fly. The free voluntary tree replacement pilot program, funded by the Department of Primary Industries and Regions, could also be extended to other outbreak areas within the Riverland. Riverland Native Plants Operations Manager Tim Field says his business has been flat out providing alternatives for fruit fruit trees.
17: Yeah, so we had quite a few um, orders that were coming through, and we just delivered those at the end of February. So, all ready to go in the ground now.
18: What are some of the most common trees that you've been replacing, and what have you been replacing them with?
17: Uh, so, there was a lot of um, olives in particular and uh, a few citrus a bit of a mix, mixed salad really but yeah uh, what we ended up doing was rather than um, having a whole range of options for people to select from we put together a, a package that was provided to landowners it had mm-hmm. around about 20 to 30 different types of trees with yes. the information around flowering and <clears throat> what you might like to put in um, so you know not everyone's going to want a massive tree right next to their house they might want a smaller tree that's only growing to three or four meters so yeah, a bit of a variety, bird attracting, bee attracting, depending what you might want to put in.
18: Are there any trees that work especially well, um, kind of, you know, obviously in this region we want to be planting our natives. Is there anything that you especially like, a personal favourite?
17: Yeah, so I mean, because we go out and we collect a lot of our own seed to grow the trees in the first place, you can get an appreciation for those that are super duper hardy. And so when you get to areas where there's not much topsoil and there's a lot of limestone in the ground, there's a native um uh, sugarwood or false sandalwood a myoporum um, it's, it's quite slow growing but it's it's long-lived has a massive flowers through summer and the birds absolutely love it so it's not always the easiest one to grow but when we get them growing they're incredibly popular just that resilient drought tolerance perfect for the region
18: yeah worth the hard work um, now you mentioned there that you've been um you know getting seeds um can you tell us a little bit more about your process of germinating seeds and um kind of why it's important i guess for you to be going out and doing it yourself
17: well, I guess for for one, it's a securing the whole of the supply chain. So you know, we we get to meet a lot of people. We get access to a lot of um, private properties, farm um, and um, lifestyle properties to collect seed from. Um, and we cover a fair range. We sort of cover from Pinaroo to Karunda to Manum to Truro, sometimes up to Barra and then through parts of the northeast pastoral. So um, it gives us a great opportunity and collecting seeds is quite tricky because it's very weather dependent. So mm-hmm. a wet season means that certain things do better than others. Um, and then it gives us more options. So when someone comes in saying, what can I plant on my place? And it doesn't matter whether you're from, you know, Western Riverland, northeast, wherever, we've got something that's come from that region so you can pretty much put something that's been collected from within kilometers from your your property
18: yeah wow it seems like your car might do a few k's then trying to rack those up
17: Uh, yeah and it's sometimes potluck because you could go out at the same time that you collected from a particular area last season and nothing's ready so it's a bit of yeah
18: yeah what sort of impacts have you seen from the floods have you gone out collecting seeds recently
17: Yeah, so we've actually, I'd say we've been more in the Mallee areas in the northern districts north of the river. Um, With a lot of the floodplain areas having been inundated, it's really limited. We did attempt to collect some seed from boats early in the season before there was restrictions on river access. And now that the water's gone back down, we'll start getting into areas as they open up again.
18: Tim Field from Riverland Native Plants. Perza Fruit Fly Response, General Manager Nick Seckham says the program will be assessed in the coming weeks, but he says it's been helpful for more than just tree removal.
1: It's gone well so far, so we've removed a hundred um, trees from people's backyards, mostly uh, lemon trees, but a few um, apple trees and olives as well. And as you said, there was an option there for people to be able to replace those trees with non-fruiting trees. And 48 of those trees have been replaced. The others are people and decided not to. And there's a range of things available to them, but most people um, seem to want bottle brushes as a replacement tree. A few honey myrtles and things like this, but um, yeah, mostly bottle brush is replaced.
18: Now, since you guys have initiated this pilot program there's obviously unfortunately been quite a few more outbreaks and we know that so many of those outbreaks are happening in backyard fruit trees. Do you think that uh, based on the numbers so far, is this something that you might look to continue? Would you like to see it expanded or anything like that?
1: So that's something we're going to look at in a month or so's time. We're going to finish the current program which is Due to run for another week or so and then have a good look at it I'm I'm sure there's probably other trees out there in the Riverland where people would like to nominate it's just a matter we want to look at the impact this has had on fruit fly management now wakery has been performing reasonably well in terms of fruit fly numbers for probably a, a number of reasons we want to understand that before we commit to going anywhere else but we should be able to do that in the next few weeks and then we can see where where it leads us
18: has it been a positive response that you've had from the public so far
1: I think so. It's a really good program for opening the door for a conversation about fruit fly which is really what you know, one of the big challenges for us. There's a lot of other things that are happening in the Riverland and have been happening so just to be able to talk to people about fruit fly is a really useful tool and, and this is something that people um, want to talk about. So. That, apart from actually removing the trees, is a really valuable, really valuable thing.
18: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, obviously, it's in, I guess, a pretty smallish space compared to the region. Um, If someone is interested in perhaps removing a tree or something, um, but they're not eligible for this free program, do you have any suggestions for what they could do to either maintain it or to get rid of it?
1: I think the important thing with most fruit trees is to keep them down to a manageable height. So if they can get those things pruned down to a size, I've just cut all my fruit trees down to almost waist high and they still produce fruit, plenty for the house, but they're they're at a size where you can actually manage them. So I think that would be my advice and and that way they can still enjoy the fruit but not have that glut of fruit, which is really hard to manage at times.
14: That was
2: Persa Fruit Fly Response General Manager Nick Seckham, finishing that story from Sophie Holder. And uh, that's uh, in response to, there's that uh, free voluntary tree replacement pilot program which uh, has been funded by Persa and uh, is looking at being extended to other outbreak areas within the Riverland as well, with more than 100 residents in Wakery already having taken up the offer to have their fruit trees removed or replaced in an effort to uh, to fight Fruit Fly. Now, speaking of Fruit Fly, Persa has declared a new queen- Queensland fruit fly outbreak in Winky with maggots found in plums in a non-commercial orchard so this latest discovery takes the total number of outbreaks in the Riverland to 30. So some residents and growers in the neighbouring yellow suspension zones of Glossop and Berry will be affected by the uh, by the restrictions on the new Winky Red outbreak area and uh, a Fruit Fly Response General Manager Nick Seccombe who we just heard from said that Perza staff are now contacting people in the new Winky outbreak area and uh, visiting properties in the area as well to remove fallen fruit and check for maggots. So just to uh, let you know, again, a new Queensland fruit fly outbreak has been declared in, uh, in Winky. Now, that's all we've got time for on the show today. You can uh, find more stories uh, online at abc.net.au slash rural. There's plenty of great content up there. Just uh, jump online or Google ABC Rural for more uh, content from right around Australia. And while you're there online and uh, where you find your favourite podcast, why don't you jump on if you want to have a listen again to uh, to today's podcast or you can uh, listen back to uh, some of the previous ones for The Country Hour as well. And make sure you stay tuned uh, tomorrow. We're going to uh, be heading to the ABES conference, which is uh, going to be happening over the next couple of days. We'll bring you plenty of stories uh, from that, uh, that conference there as well. Hope you have a good rest of your Monday. I'll be back with you tomorrow at 12 o'clock. Have a good rest of your Monday. It's coming up to news time. It's one o'clock.
10: Afternoons with Sonia Feldhoff.
9: Who says, let's be honest, the evidence shows pill testing saves lives. End of story. Stupidity shouldn't be a death sentence.
13: Sonia Feldhoff on ABC Radio South Australia.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.